Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. So, uh, uh, John, good friend of mine, uh, coming, coming off of the heels of our exhaustive deep dive into the Killer Tomatoes artistic experimental universe, uh, that celebration of cinema, that cursed study in geopolitics, uh, before we even start rolling on this one, do I need to go get my dice to do any sanity saving rolls? Are you about to tell me that Lamberto Bava was like a stay-behind Gladio agent or something? I'm not I'm not going to tell you that right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, the episode has just started. <laughs> oh, dear. Hello, listeners. Hello. Uh, it's spooky Season Part 2. We're back with some more cinema criticism for you. Uh, I am Ashley Darrow, one of your co-ghosts, joined, as always, by John, a.k.a. The Liquid Guy. How is it going, John? You know, I, I, I've been feeling a little weird. Um, I went to this movie premiere, and um, they had quite a lot of the props just kind of like hanging out at the front. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there was a weird ancient mask, and now uh, I keep kind of spitting up w- what looks like um, minty fresh toothpaste. <laughs> uh, I'm sure, I'm sure it's fine. But if anything weird happens during the recording, it's probably that. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I'm. I, I'm. You know, I've had a really busy morning. I've been sharpening my samurai sword, uh, making sure that my dirt bike is in good riding condition. Um, I, I'm, you know, just getting ready to go to the movies is pretty much all I've been doing today. Well, let's um, <laughs> let's let's celebrate the movies. Let's. Who doesn't love going to the movies? Um, especially when you've been invited by a sinister man in a hyper-stylized mask who stalks you on the Berlin subway. That's, I mean, that's every day, though. That, that, was, that was the most realistic and grounded thing in all of these movies was a weird dude on public transit trying to get you to buy his weird dude art. Yeah, <laughs> those were the, like, we must, we must return to the days <laughs> of one, properly funded public infrastructure, and two, a society which allowed weird dudes to make more weird art. Oh, oh, abs- abs- absolutely, absolutely. The the magic of seeing a guy in a, we'll talk about the guy in a mask later, because I have a very important question about the guy, the, the not phantom of the not opera. But we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves while talking about Mario. Oh my god, I did it. I did it. Mario Bava. Lamberto. Lamberto Bava's Demons and Demons 2. And no. We are... I was going to say, we're not We're not talking about the church. The church doesn't count. It's not the third Demons movie, although it is the third Demons movie. It's not. It's not. I'm afraid. It had, we are, it had we are zero talking. Lamberto in it. Yeah. And... and- you can't you can't say this it's a demons movie without any of that of the the good bava <laughs> the good bava shop at demons um, where better bava movies are sold <laughs> now uh, people people may not have uh, uh, heard about uh, lumberto bava or philistines f- philistines at all for some reason I I can't believe we live in a world where the Criterion Collection has not released Demons and Demons 2. 
But that's what we're here for. That's why we exist. And so, Ash, my dear friend, I I feel like it's now it's time for you to correct the record uh, after nearly you know some thirty five years of of misinterpretation of calumny and lies. What <laughs> is the work of the author Lamberto Bava, the demon's duology, really about? When was the last time you visited a movie theater? And more to the point, when was the last time you considered the ideological and political foundations of the moviegoing experience? We don't often consider the theater as a political space. Movie theaters reach the level of political consciousness when they intersect with unions, discourses of ability, and slight issues of which films get which screens. But the existence of the theater as an organ of the body politic is largely overlooked. This is a bit surprising given how powerful theaters are as a vehicle for political discussion. The theater has an uneasy position of being strided across public commons, art exhibits, and entertainment. When you're watching a movie at a theater, how much noise is too much? It might be gauche to laugh too obnoxiously, chew food too loudly, or bring small children. But why the hell are those things gauche? We immediately encounter political problems. Why is it unseemly for children to behave as children in public? I've seen a lot of people complaining about children using iPads and smartphones in theaters in the post-vaccine movie-going experience. Let's explore this one small sliver of the problems of the theater from a materialist Marxist standpoint. We must first ask why are children so reliant on smartphones and short-form entertainment? No matter how we slice this, whether it is the dwindling public common making it virtually impossible for children to play outside, cars becoming so large they're nearly purpose-built to kill small children, or parents being unable to afford childcare, we reach immediate Marxist conclusions. Working people, working parents, are caught in the double-bind of having to somehow be productive workers and good parents, two things that are entirely incompatible. Scratch a social faux pas and the system of oppression of the worker bleeds. It's just a microcosm of how working people are set against each other. Inside each of us is that teeming demonic urge waiting to burst forth. The urge to become something of the boss. Something that would transform the theater into yet another enclosed space where working people of all backgrounds feel begrudgingly trapped rather than liberated. Yet, if that demonic impulse lives within each of us, so too does our salvation. If we are all made demonic under the silver light of the screen, then we are afforded a profane glimpse into our shared identity. Even in our passing internalization of our own oppression, we are made to briefly confront that oppression. We all chew loudly in a quiet theater. We are all embodied by markers of class that betray our feigned civility. So we are left with a choice. The theater is either to be a desolate and silent cell within a greater panopticon, or it can be a riot. A bursting of laughter, a scream, a kiss in the dark, Grab your favorite Coke can, get on your bikes, and join us as we slice into Lamberto Bava's demons. You have a responsibility to the future. Yes, yes, yes. Get on your bikes and ride. Do, 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 queen reference. Is that the first queen reference we've we've made here on the show? I mean, no, it It can't can't be. be. Surely. Uh... God, what have we been doing for so long? Down down with all mo- monarchs, except for the works of one Freddie Mercury. Yeah, uh, indeed. Uh, I think if we are going to talk about <laughs> Bava, if if we are going to talk about if we are going to talk about um, demons, 
mm-hmm. I think we should start by trying to conceptualize and theorize Giallo. I think that's a great place to start because this, what we're seeing with demons is the successor to the Giallo format. Oh, that's, well, that, I think that's an interesting point. Do you think this is not a Giallo? That see this this I think is 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 difficult because this shares obvious lineology with Giallo, right? It's made by a Bava, you know. It's it's made by the son of one of the like, I was about to say architects, but I shouldn't say the word architects in conversation about Italian things on a left podcast because that <laughs> that evokes the wrong discourse. But no, like this is this is coming off the heels, and we see a lot of Giallo influence in this, right? You know, like uh, so Giallo and Gialli, the plural get their names uh, uh, from the word yellow in Italian because there were yellow trashy paperbacks of murder mystery novels, right? And then the the film versions of those shared names with the books that they they were kind of culturally tethered to. And we see a lot of that in Demons, right? This, this has a lot of those trashy qualities. It has a lot of the giallo lighting that we come to know and enjoy. But a lot of the other formalistic qualities are not used here, right? I won't say missing, but I, but I will say they're not used. We don't have the classic black-gloved killer. We don't have the classic kind of like hypersexualized damsels. We don't have a lot of the like, there's a lot of like psychological torment going on in Gialli cinema, but that's absent in Demons. What's in Demons is a l- more cocaine than any movie has room for. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think this is broadly true. I think this is metatextually a giallo. Oh, totally. Um, and actually, the film within this film is definitely a giallo. Oh no, that's one hundred percent true. And and we'll, so, we'll we'll get into the film within the film. Yeah. So in in a sense, I think it is a it's a kind of like ironic, kind of reflexive commentary on. So Limberto Bava is the uh, writer director of this. His uh father is Mario Bava, who is widely regarded as perhaps the great auteur of mm-hmm. Gialli cinema. Uh, Black Sunday, yes, Black Sunday, uh, or uh, The Mask of the Demon in Italian uh, is, is sort of like the high point of classic, the, the, the classic giallo that you're talking about. 1960 makes an absolute star out of Barbara Steele. Um, it's got... Uh, yeah, it's 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 loosely based on a Gogol short story as well, which is kind of cool. Um, and Lamberto Bava makes his kind of career acting as his father's like uh, assistant director or second unit director mm-hmm. uh, before like getting into like special effects. He makes some films in like the sixties. This is like late in his or later in his career. Um, and yeah, I, this is not a. This is not a giallo. This is not in any sense uh, a classic continuation of what his father was doing. But there are definitely elements here which are... Well, maybe because we talked about fascination. How would you differentiate between the French Fantastique and the Italian giallo? Ooh, I I think we're splitting a very fine hair with this one. There's some obvious formalistic differences, right? Like giallo is much more interested in the murder mystery aspect of things. Uh, Giallo is also where, where the French fantastique has this dreamlike quality to all of its imagery. Giallo is much more into a kind of visceral cinema and very garish lighting. Uh, so, so those are some practical differences between the two. And I, and I think more broadly, like the French fantastique is very 
open about this kind of incursion of the unreal into the space of the real and how that impacts the lives of everyone. And Giallo is much more about this kind of like embodied, tense, you know, eroticized interaction between the kind of like horrific and the visually titillating. Yeah, I think that's a really good, that's a really good way of differentiating. But they they, they are kind of like cinematic cousins um, because there is a, there is a, a libidinal economy at work in, I think it clearest in demons, for, certainly, that absolutely ties into the work of someone like Jean Roland and the, the, the broader French fantastique. Mm-hmm. But this is because the French fantastique and the giallo both emerge in the kind of like second tier of the cinematic economy, as it were. They were, they were usually made pretty cheap. They were usually made, uh, they were usually made by people who were not working in other realms of, of filmmaking. Um, they were often made, uh, to be kind of like cut up. There is, there is, as you like to call it, a lot of nose to tail editing in a giallo. <laughs> um, you, you're using every single bit of the celluloid. Nothing is wasted. Um, like I believe, actually, when Demons was first proposed, someone wanted to use footage from a, a Fulci movie mm-hmm. as the thing that was being shown, and it's like there is a lot of this kind of like really plot isn't all that important. What's more more important is affect and mood and style. Yes, yeah, and I think that's definitely something in common between Giallo and the Fantastique. Their vibes-based cinema that also make you ask, is this softcore? So, uh, should we talk about the kind of mixed bag of success that Demons was initially met with? Uh, yes. Yes, yes, we should. Uh, Actually, this is true pretty much, I think, quite a lot of Bava's movies. Um, How would you describe its critical and financial reception? Uh, this film <laughs> did, did not do so well with the critics. It, it turns out that people who watch movies for a living don't like watching bad movies. What are the odds? Um, unless, <laughs> unless you're blessed with a, uh, a divine grace uh, and, and you watch Bava's Demons and you go, ah, fantastique. Um, but no, so this was panned by critics because uh, the movie is a mess. Um, but audiences loved it financially very successful because it turns out that your movie can really suck as long as it's fun to watch it doesn't matter how yeah, much as it long sucks. as it's fun uh and as long as again we'll get to we'll get to some of the reasons why it might have been fun to watch um but but like i, I said when we started recording like a giallo film is not really supposed to be financially successful that's not what they're for mm-hmm uh, quite a lot of the time they were used as tax write-offs. Quite a lot of the time they were used as like essentially money laundering operations for the mob. Great. <laughs> so, so if a critic turns around and goes, oh, well, this isn't very good, but the audience at the midnight screening is having a whale of a time, then that's what your metric of success really should be. And this does this does push us into like difficult... I, I think theoretical spaces with cinema, right? Like what, are the, what is the purpose of a movie and by whose standards does it have to be good? Question mark. And then how, yeah. how is that good? How is that goodness generated? You know, because like this is so much of the value of a film. Films are so highly cultural objects, right? So, so much of their value is driven by 
external factors that are often overlooked. Like one of the things that I keep my my best example of this, right, <clears throat> is let's imagine like a single parent with two kids wants to take the family to go see a movie on a Saturday. You go to the local mm-hmm. theater and Disney has <clears throat> a children's movie, a Marvel movie and a Star Wars movie there. And then like Warner has an adult romance and an adult action movie. And then maybe there's a comedy if it's not spooky season and there's a horror movie if it's spooky season. I mean, your your window of opportunity has been narrowed for you, right? You're going to pick a Disney movie because you're because you're there with the kids, probably. Right. You know, and then which Disney movie you pick will be governed by tastes and, and gender dynamics and a ton of other things. But like that, that kind of falsely buffs Disney's cultural presence they've forced that decision on people, right? You do not have a choice. You know, I guess you could not go to the theater. You could go to your local library and check out a movie and watch it at home, but that's not a theater going experience. That's less fun. And so we have this kind of like Disney is astroturfing its presence in theaters. And this is a, this is a very direct example, but it is an example of like audience tastes, critic tastes, like they're never like developed in vacuo. They're always in conversations with larger cultural forces that often go like unchecked. Oh yeah, this is that's completely true, completely true. Um, and it's like, I, I I really do think that's an important point of like, what does it mean for something to be good? There, there can be, I think there can be successful and unsuccessful work. Um, but I think when you start, because you can construct a kind of like, does this achieve what it sets out to achieve? Um, but when you start thinking about like what what makes something good you automatically get into the realm of both value mm-hmm. and ideology absolutely and, and just go back and like look at some of our recent episodes right look at our episode on suburban sasquatch a movie that is like by by even the most generous critical standards not very good or <laughs> or our episode on the attack of the killer killer oh my god attack of the killer tomatoes franchise which those those movies are also uh, a bit a bit rickety a, a bit a bit duct taped together, but oh my mm-hmm. god, I am not going to be able. I am a different person. I am a different living being after our yeah, conversation absolutely. about those movies, and that conversation would not have happened without those awkward movies being in in the place that they were. Right? Yeah, and it, I think maybe the thing that kind of gives you a really easy way into why this is a, why these are successful films is um they're practical effects there is there is a huge amount of like pioneering practical effects work that happens in 70s and 80s italian cinema and the practical effects in demons and demons 2 are genuinely impressive and like viscerally kind of thrilling and so there is this these practical these practical effects have practical affects to them as well right this is oh we I kind of feel like we have to talk about this now because it's such a big formal part of the films. We have to talk about how these films represent goo and slime and fluid and blood and other kinds of uh, uh, viscera. Um, so this is this is obviously your wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> so so a uh, little, little horror vanguard inside inside baseball here. I uh, have a lot of notes on goo in the demons movies but i left them out of the notes doc because i'm like eh, john's gonna say ash talk about goo so i don't need to put these in the notes doc. now you absolutely did not need to um <laughs> i i really need you to talk about it's because i'm like this is this is a it's a it's a 
it isn't it isn't just a discursive it is a formal part of the film's construction as cinematic text yes yes so in 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 the kind of lore of bava's demons right the demons are transmitted via some type of biologic infection right the the infection initially resides in this plastic halloween star mask i mean ancient relic um yep yeah and then uh it's transmitted from person to person but the first thing that happens before you undergo your full demonic transformation is is a large welt forms forms uh on the area where you were scratched or bitten by the demon and then that explodes like like a tennis ball sized zit full of pus and the the thing that i'd like to to have a discussion with you about since you and i are both graduate scholars of the gothic you and i are classically trained in literature uh so there's so much gothic discourse on blood blood is the most discoursed of the body's fluids especially in the gothic context thank you vampires um but we never talk about pus 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 Mm -hmm. has yet to get its day in in a gothicized context in a literary context and i think there's there's so much more to grapple with about this fluid right there's this kind of abject quality to pus it's it's not nearly as eroticized as as other fluids tend to be it's absent from a lot of these these gothic contexts you know we have some lovecraftian monsters that are very fluidic in the pus sense of it but like the, these kind of lymphatic discharges are missing do you do you have any gothic takes on this one fellow respected academic what well, could we argue that there is an attempt to eroticize it oh yeah i was hoping this would be in in this film right so our first um Oh, here's another question. Are the demons zombies? Ooh, see, this this I think is really, really interesting as kind of like a, a thing to discuss and pick apart because they definitely act like zombies. They definitely do zombie-related things sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So, so some of the demons are basically like your average kind of shambling undead. Other demons are are able to communicate and plan and strategize. Other demons hatch little puppet demons from their back that run away oh, we'll and get don't to do that. anything. <laughs> I haven't figured that one out yet. We're we're working on it. But 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 I think what I think what is really interesting about the kind of like zombie thing that's going on here is we're we're seeing an attempt to like iterate on what by the by the time demons and demons 2 come out is like a standard formula for a movie is the zombie so we're seeing an attempt to like how could you do some kind of mass infection creature without it being just another night of the living dead zombie yeah because like the reason i ask is like there is there is a it's transmitted by by biting that's it's a fluidic based monster there is no there is no theology there is no demonology that happens here mm-hmm. um not not really the way that you deal with them is the same way that you deal with a zombie you destroy the physical form um but to go back to what i was I, so i think i think there is like um in the in the venn diagram of kind of the big book of gothic monsters the, these are uh there is a zombification element that's at work here right Oh yeah, totally. Um, but to to go back to what I was saying about um, pus, <laughs> uh, it there there is there is I think arguably an attempt to 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 showcase a kind of libidinal economy. Um, 
the first person who goes through this transformation is uh, a sex worker. Um, and the scenes that lead up to their transformation are there's this really interesting intercutting of this audience watching a movie that's clearly getting a few of them quite hot and bothered and like exposing the libidinal economy of the slasher movie generally Mm -hmm. Uh, at the same time that this person is like oozing pus and kind of weeping sores so i I don't know do you think i'm kind of like stretching things a little bit no no i i think this is a really good way a good window into this discourse right because like the the thing that i think marks a distinction with pus as a fluid compared to a lot of the other fluids that already have like accepted homes in a kind of like gothicized framework right is its association with illness you know like is is its status of being diseased is kind of zombified in a way but i think like we have an uncomfortable closeness to that already Right, there's obvious political contexts, right? Like the the dwindling access to healthcare in in both of our countries, right? That that's making illness closer to home. It's making things that cause pus discharge, these kind of like pseudo zombifications, much 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 closer. But then I think we have broader political conversations where we can have where it's like, why are we uncomfortable with, with these kind of like markers of zombification? And and not mm-hmm. only does it bring us closer to the awareness that we are in a sense zombified as a sedated working proletariat mass, but also, you know, how close are all of we to becoming, you know, bearers of the signifiers that we would associate with being zombies, right? How, how close are all of we to like, you know, I, I don't know, becoming homeless and then having, you know, like, you know, your clothes slowly degrade over time, your appearance degrade over time, or, you know, uh, you know, having, uh, a disability right like these things that are encoded into the zombies form i mean i think on a on a very basic level on a very straightforward level what pus is a representation it's a symptom of something right pus is the symptom of something in the body there is something inside you like and it doesn't take much of a stretch to connect that to a libidinal or eroticized economy of exchange right yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have do you have more on that? Um just just that really, which is like this is why I think it's I think it's so interesting that all of this is framed around the cursed film and the transmission mm-hmm. of something uh at, at, that is triggered by arousal, right? And there's a there is a a, a jouissance at work here that is kind of uncomfortably erotic oh deeply there's 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 a libidinal freedom to the state of the demons in this one and i think this is now that we're talking about it, i think this is the distinction i'd mark between them and like the kind of romero zombie right the, the romero zombie is a deeply anhedonic creature tick your bingo cards everyone we've said anhedonic um <laughs> ding but uh, Bava's demons are like deeply hedonic. They are deeply libidinal, right? Like, like they're they, overflowing. They are just doing with what they love, and what they love is putting their fingers into your head to <laughs> take out your brain and then lick their fingers clean. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 far, far, far more erotic than than the zombies. They have they have this active agency towards what they're doing, rather than the kind I mean, of this- shambling passivity. I mean, this is a point that, uh, and here's another one you can cross off. 
this is a point that Carol Clover makes, right? Men, Women and Chainsaws is all about the fact the slasher had this eroticized libidinal economy at work within it that was um, directly aimed at the demographic that were both the perpetrators and victims of the various slasher killers represented, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the 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 girls meet those those preppy guys who are suddenly like uncomfortably into this movie because it's like, oh no, if you're scared, you can hold my hand. And then in the background, somebody is kind of like spewing up this bright blue fluid from them from deep within themselves. And you're like, okay, we can see what's going on here. Oh, yeah. And, and I think that's one of the wonderful things about both of the Demons movies, despite their many flaws, is that we get to we get to spend so much screen time just kind of like reveling in the goo, right? Like like half the fun of watching the Demons movies is just being grossed out, just getting uncomfortable, just enjoying the space of that uh, type of uncomfort. Mm. And we, we arrive there by way of what, what I think are some lovely practical effects. I could not agree more. I couldn't agree more. And uh, whilst we're talking about formal elements that we have a lot of fondness for, um, can we also just talk about the score for Demons first? Oh my god, this th- this movie has a legendary banger. If you like hair metal, you are going to love Demons. And thinking about it, thinking about it, like I think the the sonic semiotics of hair metal actually is so fitting for what demons is about mm-hmm. i mean hair, ma- hair metal is endlessly self-referential libidinal hedonistic uh, uh sweaty and gooey in its mm-hmm. own way um it's so it's all there right it's so fitting that like one of the first names you recognize when you look at the credits is motley crew right <laughs> And it works so well with the context of the film too, because like like the way everyone's style, everyone's attitude. This is the most like cocaine eighties hair metal movie that I've seen in a minute, right? Outside of like Black Roses and that kind of like stretch of like hair metal rock horror films, mm-hmm. like this this movie has that energy. The whole thing is just like a bunch of like really sweaty, coked up people trying to escape a zombie apocalypse. Uh, I like that we've coined both new metal cinema and now hair metal cinema. <laughs> yeah, that's that's because we're we're the poet laureates of of horror. We're we're able to engage with with music, right? We we have this sonic quality to us <laughs> that uh, um, makes mean, me want to talk about the years of lead. <laughs> Zing! I there's think, a twist. I think if we're talking about if we're talking about mid to late 20th century italian film <laughs> you you kind of can't avoid the topic right so uh 85 and 86 you know the red brigades were like abducting politicians and leaving them in car boots uh just a decade earlier you had like far right militias planting bombs and like murdering socialists there was this and like so and again, I don't want to just do a kind of naive correlationism, but if you think about this of like, if you're touched by something, if something gets under your skin, you can be transformed into this raging monster that can only be physically destroyed and can, can't be reasoned with. There is a sort of political subtext here. Oh, deeply. Oh, very, very, very much so. Right. You know, and I, and I think like, 
it's very important that the movie's supposed to be set in Berlin. Mm-hmm. I, I think adding that additional layer to the political context of what's going on here, the consequences of Italian fascism, the 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 long unraveling of World War II and the Cold War, uh, mm-hmm. all of those contexts are alive and well inside of Mario Bava's Demons and Demons 2, which we'll definitely get into. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, my, uh Bava's Demons 2 is really all about Operation Gladio. Change my mind. <laughs> oh, dear. There's another, another another free bingo square for everybody. You know, we mentioned Operation Gladio in the context of any Italian movie. Uh, I mean, basically, but I think it's kind of inescapable because it was so omnipresent. It's like you can't ignore it. And, you know, credit to a lot of... Um, what gets dismissed as being super low culture Mm -hmm. like they they all took it quite seriously they were all they all knew about it and i think that's one i mean like we talk about this a lot on the show too but that's one of the advantages of horror right is by by being so low budget you're you're given this freedom of not having the scrutiny of capital right like your your garbage art for garbage people under the eyes of the tastemakers and the system at large and so you don't get held to the same rigorous standards as i don't know any any movie that would qualify as a criterion film i take that back criterion's releasing a lot of weird stuff sometimes so maybe criterion's not the best example here yeah i mean like uh Bava was not getting funding funding from like a CIA front or the Congress for Cultural Freedom. You know, it's like it's these low brow films uh, for a deliberately mass audience. So, of course, it's in tune with these sort of ideological currents. It's allowed to be more honest. Mm-hmm. So I do want to talk about one of the greatest sequences ever put to film. Yes. <laughs> in in this movie and this this is now the the first the first recipient of our new award here at Horror Vanguard. So Mar- Mario Bava, you're turning I think you're 79 this year. Lamberto, Lamberto. Lamberto. Bava. Oh my god, Lamberto. I'm so sorry, Lamberto. Lamberto Bava, you think you're 79 this year and I would like to present you with Horror Vanguard's most cocaine movie sequence award. Yes. Uh, this is very coveted. <laughs> I, I feel like we should we should make this a, a semi-regular feature. But but there's there's this beautiful sequence where our our final girl and and our protagonist are back in in the theater. They've been running through the whole uh, uh, building trying to escape, finding walls mysteriously bricked up, being trapped in this demon haunted theater. And he gets the, there's he gets on a dirt bike and grabs a samurai sword. Which, which were part of a display promoting the movie in the lobby. So thank God that they put those two things there for the display and not like a, a stone sarcophagus or something. Uh, and and of then, course, for the record, for the record, the bike and the samurai sword do not feature in the film that's shown within the film at all. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he starts to starts to just 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 rev it up and just tear ass through the theater, chopping chopping zombie demons in half. And it's it's beautiful. And at some point, he theoretically could have escaped on this dirt bike, but no, he's just rampaging. And then, you know, the the, the dirt bike fails him. You know, all seems lost. He's fighting with a samurai sword that that he knows how to use with expert skill for reasons. And then a helicopter comes crashing through the the, the roof of the cinema for 
not set up at all. It just plummets through as an act, yep. a mysterious act of God's love. Yep. <laughs> there is a Deus Ex helicopter. It's amazing. <laughs> it's just, it's just, and for a brief second, you're like, he's going to fly that thing. He's going to fly the fucking helicopter out of the theater. But no, he just turns the blades on and a bunch of demons are kind enough to hurl themselves into the helicopter blades and die. Which, I mean, that's at least they're kind about it. I I don't know if you ever uh, spoke to a 13-year-old who's hopped up on, like, sugar and a lack <laughs> of sleep and asked them to describe what would be the coolest possible way of escaping a zombie apocalypse. This is exactly what they would tell you. Oh, one 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 hundred percent. This is this is the coolest imaginable sequence. Not <laughs> not even joking. It is fun to watch because no. it is just ridiculous. No. Absolutely, I'm I'm being entirely sincere when I tell you it's maybe one of the best things I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> right, and I, and I think and I think what we see in in the first demons movie is this kind of like kaleidoscop kaleidoscopic collision of different cinematic forms. Right, we have the zombie movie, we have Gialli, we have uh, the 80s action movie. Because this is the kind of bombast mm-hmm. yep. that's that's right at home in any 80s action movie. You know, oh yeah, 100%. Lead, lead male protagonist just by default knows how to operate every vehicle and use every weapon because that's what a good action hero does. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And he, like, um, he, oh, and it ends with him like firing a grappling hook. Through through oh, the uh, through the hole in the ceiling, and then like free climbing up with his babe in, in, in his arms to to escape the the demon theater pit. I, I, again, this is the coolest film ever, <laughs> <laughs> and thus thus Lamberto Bava, we present to you the inaugural horror vanguard most cocaine film sequence. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, truly, truly, it is it is miraculous to watch. We're, we're not joking, by the way. Like that scene rips. <laughs> no, no, I like. I know people are going to be like, "Oh, they're being they're doing a bit." No, I'm entirely sincere. That that, that final sequence absolutely uh, it makes no sense, and it's completely incredible. <laughs> uh, and you know what else makes no sense and is completely incredible, li- listeners? It's the Horror Vanguard Patreon where you get access to our Discord and early access to episodes, as well as bonus episodes uh, once, once every month for the low, low cost of... Oh my god, it is like the cost of a can of Coke nowadays because we live in an inflationist, rentier economy where nothing is sacred. But for the cost of a can of Coke, you can get access to all those things which are good and sacred and make sense. Patreon.com says we're here. Good Lord. Yeah, but basically, we would really, really appreciate it if people listening to the show decided to support it by giving us just a little bit of money. Um, it, it You get some cool bonuses, and uh, it helps us justify doing this. <laughs> so It ke- keeps us in helicopters. Like, it does. It, like, how... We have to regularly drop helicopters through the ceiling of the HV crypt, and um, <laughs> that's a lot of work to repair. <laughs> Oh dear. So, um I I know that we should get into the discourse zone and there's a little 
there's a little thing you want to talk about uh, called architectural modernism. Yeah, absolutely. My sort of semi-hot take is uh, Demons is metatextually about the collapse of European modernism as an architectural form. Um, because is this not just the most beautiful movie theater you've ever seen? Uh, it's this gorgeous, like, modernist building, you know, in the middle of Berlin, uh, clearly built in the immediate aftermath of uh, World War II, or, or alternatively, is a survivor of, like, late 20s, early 30s uh, kind of modern architecture that, you know, had to be denazified. Um, what what do you think of the environment in which this film happens? So there's there, there's kind of like this weird thing in the theater landscape in the United States where every like big budget chain theater has like an absolute garbage interior, mm-hmm. right? Like like it it is the it is the epitome of the theater that is like caked floor to ceiling and in like layers of dried soda pop and popcorn. You know, in in uncomfortable seats and and it's just awkward and it's architecturally bland as can be, right? It's a box. And then then there are all of these like dwindling and fading little community theaters that are built into old theater spaces. And they have the most beautiful, lavish interiors, despite like massive, massive neglect, right? Like... I, I have been to like so many little little like community theaters. When I say little community theaters, sometimes they're like the flagship theater of a city. But, but like, you know, like you, you'll 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 be sitting up in in the balcony section, and you'll notice that like I don't know, maybe like a small corner of the ceiling is kind of collapsed or something like that, because they don't have the money to repair them, and certainly not the money to repair them to the historic standards they need to be kept to. And like the the thing the thing that kind of always pops in my mind here is like the architecture of spaces that could be really enjoyed by people, right? Any kind of public common, especially here in the United States, but this is also true in the UK. You know, the architecture of these spaces is the most chewed and degraded and sad of all locations. And then like you just just walk into like, I don't know, the main banking branch of the big bank in a local city and it will be like this opulent building that you are not allowed to spend any time in. Yeah. And the 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 Metropole, <coughs> as this theatre is called, is like this gorgeous institution of like high ceilings and multiple tiers. There's a circle. There's stalls. Um, so many so many cinemas are now incredibly small because it's better to kind of pack it out. But this is an enormous space, you know, and there is this kind of beautiful abstract angular architecture that, you know, Bava clearly has a great time lighting and kind of putting all kinds of dramatic um, shadow into it. Uh, and so it's so interesting that there, at one point, when the when the demon, the, the demonification starts to kind of really take hold, a few of the survivors try and escape, but the its topology seems very strange to them. And there is a, at one point, they actually the the movie theater becomes a movie set right they at one point they kind of arrive at doors and they literally like rip the doors off the off the walls and it's just mm-hmm. brickwork yeah. and so suddenly the kind of beautiful thing about that sort of architectural topology for cinema is that the space itself eventually kind of collapses and there is no 
like it becomes this vanishing mediator between the subject and the screen, right? Mm-hmm. So at mm-hmm. one point they just they just end up in like a brick, what looks like a backlot, right? They just yes. end up in like this brick enclosure, and it's such an interesting moment when. At, you know, one minute they're then kind of going through the the vents of this like a barhouse inspired <laughs> theater, and then suddenly it all kind of vanishes away. And it's like, really, there is a there's a bit of kind of melancholy to it because it genuinely does seem to be about the the kind of withering away of this theatrical performance space as the screen and the subject basically kind of merge into one. So to me. This and Demons 2, even more so, does kind of, like, herald the arrival of, like, code space being, like, omnipresent. I I think you're completely correct. Lamberto Bava's Demons foretells the dark age of Funko Pop. <laughs> and fandoms being the driving force of any kind of artistic discourse. It it is it is yeah. about that collapsing space between what we're watching on screen and what's happening to us, and and I think like yeah. So talking about that in the con in the coming age of, oh, what fandom are you a part of? Are you a part of like or like uh, or like a content sludge? Yes, right where con- mm-hmm. where content is like so like the theater was this place where you entered in as a participant within a performance, right? And that performance was the thing that was projected on screen, but you were there actually constituting the performance because if there is no audience, the film itself uh, just is a sort of like static object. It's the material thing on the reel, but it's when there is a a viewer that the thing becomes kind of living, as it were. And it's like now you are almost always already in that relationship. And it makes it, in so many ways, it actually makes it harder to engage with media. Oh, absolutely. And like, you know, like, I don't know, I can joke about Funko Pops all day because, you know, your bingo cards, everyone, get your bingo cards out because I'm talking about bad things about Funko Pops. Mulch them, mulch them into useful medical supplies or something. Um, but, we, you know, we, I can I can have fun, but I could also not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so so there's um, there's a type of media today that's called second screen media by mm-hmm. by kind of the film industry. Right. And it's anything that you are meant to watch on a secondary screen while you're doing some other activity, right? And one of the things that we're seeing is like a lot of the stuff that's getting pushed to Disney Plus and other streaming services is being written as second screen media, right? You're meant to have these Disney Plus programs just kind of playing in the background while you're doing your work from home job or catching up on chores or hanging out with your partner or something, you're not really it's not written with the assumption that the audience is going to be watching it intently and critically engaged and that's because you'll get more uptime on the app if you just let it run in the background and uptime yeah. matters that that's the yeah. that's the metric that that they care about the most it doesn't matter if you actually like or remember what's going on it just matters that it's playing eternally and i think that this kind of is is also darkly foretelling the coming day of that right the the total collapse of the space between the screen and the viewer you know when mm-hmm. you just have things playing constantly and they're not even playing to be watched they're playing to play they're playing to be a part of you yeah you know it's like this idea of like there's the playlist that you're supposed to fall asleep to mm-hmm. right Every, everything has to become um kind of ter- you 
it's it's very it's very symbiotic right you you have the content that enables you to score your own life as it were um so thus all you become is a kind of mulch for the content machine and in a way i think that's exactly what the ending of demons 2 is about ooh ooh okay okay but we'll get to that I, I have so many takes about the endings of Demons 2. I, d- I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but ooh, ooh, that is a tempting analysis that, that you put forth right there. And, and I think in regards to this kind of politics of on-screen and off-screen space, one of the things in Demons that I think is particularly challenging is that they're kind of... It's not that there is no longer a meaningful distinction between on and off-screen, but it's that in the kind of conversation put forward by Demons, it's that there never was... Mm. Right. The mask is an off screen real world object. We do not know whether or not the the movie or the demons predate each other. Which one which one came first? This is the chicken and an egg problem, but it's an evil demon plastic Halloween store mask and an audience infected by a demon zombie virus. And I mean, I think I think actually you're right. That makes the whole thing even bleaker, which is like maybe maybe that this this idea of having a space in which you would willingly become a participant right and willingly like blur those edges of the subject object distinction between the screen and the spectator maybe that was always a kind of trap like the media was always already inside your head the demon was just always just always already there waiting to kind of burst out gooily yeah yeah i i think um <laughs> burst out gooily <laughs> <laughs> that is a beautiful phrasing. That is that is the most Lamberto Bava phrasing I've heard in a while. <laughs> he burst out gooily. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but no but no. So I I think um, it, it it is it is very bleak. But I think in in that bleakness is even you know like you know we we can you know till the darkest soils to to grow something interesting. We are a horror movie podcast after all. And I, I think the, the kind of question of like, we, we don't know which force comes first, right? You know, the, this distinction between on-screen and off-screen space is is forever collapsing, right? And, and I think that, that that does become a little bit more powerful, though, because if we have that agency, right? If we know that the on-screen thing that we're viewing is materially and immediately connected with us, the kind of off-screen viewer, the quote-unquote off-screen viewer... Then, then we can kind of like seize control of this cultural apparatus a little more. We can kind of like reach back and grab it. We've talked so many um, in our Suburban Sasquatch episode. You know, you and I were talking mm-hmm. about like if you own a smartphone, you literally own all of the equipment you need to start making movies right now, today. That's the only device you need right now. And that's that's beautiful and that's incredibly powerful. And like, you know, like the, the community theater space is, is as we see in Demons, collapsing, right? Like the place where amateurs can screen their films is decreasing rapidly. And, you know, even like Netflix, which for a brief moment was like, oh, it's this great hub for indie cinema. Uh, now that's completely untrue. Like look at the list of acceptable cameras that Netflix, you know, says you have to shoot your movie on and like, tell me that's accessible. <laughs> And so it does let us at least, at the very least, this gives us the opportunity of confronting a kind of failing political apparatus. Yeah, I mean, I think Demons is a kind of like, as I as I said, I think it's sort of meta cinema, really. It's it's trying it's trying to it's trying to say something about what is 
it's it's a film about watching a film and what watching that film can do to you what what is the i mean this is this is a kind of deeply political question right it's the basic um the basic issue of 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 ideology which is like how something that is immaterial this series of social relations actually then mediates those relationships right this this these imagined relationships uh, are a way of imagining the kind of actually existing relationships that we have. That's the idea. That's that's the structure of ideology, and in a way, this that's what this film is about. It's about it's about the 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 way in which imagination and reality kind of intersect in a materialist sense. So that does that does bring up one of the outspoken political moments in. Bava's first demons movie and that's a shot early on when all of our kind of key players are congregating in the theater uh there's a shot where over one of their shoulders uh we see a poster for a movie that just says no nukes and we're, we mm-hmm. hold on that shot for long enough for the audience to be able to key in and read how do you uh, feel yes. how do you feel about the anti-nuclear proliferation message in lamberto Bava's demons i mean uh this was this was this was a kind of big that was that was a really big and important thing in you know uh a a western european left at the time mm-hmm. um i mean the 80s it's the cold this, war it's the height of the cold war you've got people like ep thompson um mm-hmm. who were who were very involved in the campaign for nuclear disarmament um and yeah i th- i think is this it's th- that's the point at which Actually, actually, having having th- ha- thinking aloud here for a second, can we not draw a direct line between this meta, this meta and kind of reflexive comment on cinema uh, as a technology and ideological structuring device? Can we not draw a direct line between that and nuclear prol- proliferation? Go on, I love this. I mean. Uh, what about the you know the 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 U.S. Army making films at Bikini Atoll where they were doing nuclear tests, or the films from uh, the desert during the Manhattan Project, or in fact, uh, when was when was when was Th- Threads, for example? Mm-hmm. Threads is nineteen eighty four, I think. So, like the the great problem of uh the the kind of Im- of nuclear war is that it's almost literally unrepresentable right what you can represent is the immediate aftermath as so much great cinema has done um but like it too so like if if Lamberto Bava is talking about the these films as kind of like the cinema as this ideological structuring tool which is only visible in relation to itself the same is true of the nuclear weapons right you could not mutually assured destruction was all about the fact that this was unrepresentable that if Mm -hmm. you started down this path you would already lost so but all you could see was like the warning of what could happen or the aftermath of what was happening you could never kind of present it directly and I think this is really important to kind of like gauge with in retros or engage with in retrospect from our current cultural moment, right? There's really no anti-nuclear proliferation political activity going on anymore. No one, no one's really talking about this issue, despite the fact that like 
not only do nukes still abound, do, do both of our countries still have enough nuclear weapons to make life redundant, but like <laughs> we don't really engage with that. Like we, we don't have that within our political sphere. You know, the, the, the fact that we still have these technologies, we still have these weapons of uh, an unspeakably catastrophic level of destruction. You know, like the, the kind of no nukes f- phrasing is now no in the sense of negation in the cultural imagination. Right. Yeah, like, I mean, we, we don't even necessarily really have a kind of like uh, uh, anti-war peace movement. Yeah, that's Not true. really. I mean, uh, you, you know this idea of like actually war is a bad thing that it and it is a good thing to de-escalate um is seen as a kind of like a somewhat contentious position now particularly in the mainstream of both british and american politics right all you can do is be like onwards <laughs> and oh, i think yeah. it's you know it's it's obviously it's part partly of a long history of like laws on sedition and uh you know putting Catholic workers who broke into military bases to pour uh, blood on guns, uh, throwing them in jail for years at a time, and doing the same for water defenders on uh, uh, First Nations land. And it's like there has been a systematic attempt to make the idea of like no nuclear war and in fact no war uh, almost unthinkable. Oh, completely. And I think this really does. And this is this is a good bridge to get into uh, Lamberto Bava's Demons Two. Um, and that these movies are very much about media as the kind of libidinal politics of control, right? That this, this kind of like, you know, like the, the panopticon that is cinema, right? That this, this ecology of our own oppression being represented on screen. And I think it, because when the Iraq war started here in the United States, like there, there was a vibrant anti-war movement. Um, was it? It was the shadow of what it was during Vietnam, but nevertheless, there was there was an anti-war movement here because it was the war in Iraq, right? It, it was it was an officially declared war-type activity that could be protested as a war that fit into kind of these cinema narratological frameworks, right? Like we we have ways of speaking about engaging with these things that fit these kind of cultural forms of storytelling. You know, if you're anti-war, you could go to an anti-war protest, but if you're anti-war and it's more of an anti-terroristic military engagement between disputed forces. Well, I'm anti-war, but am I anti-military engagement against terrorists and disputed forces? Question mark. You know, like the 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 terms of the conflict shifted in such a way where it became un, untenable to resist it from the kind of liberal aesthetic phenomena that that often governs a lot of protest culture and again like this is something i think we mentioned in the last nine hour episode we did but mark fisher's idea of like what happens if you held a protest and everybody came you know and i I think that 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 does reveal some of the limitations of how we engage with anti-war protesting on a very aesthetic level anti-nuclear protesting on an aesthetic level like protest as this kind of just like moralized aestheticized set of behaviors yeah, and but I think even that now is is a space that's kind of contracted. Like, even even now, are there like are there mainstream politicians that are like war is not good? Very few. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, oh, and, absolutely. And you're right. I I think this brings up um the, this kind of like the, this expansion of like the field of representation, this meta cinematic 
uh, media culture, this rise of like the the screen as being something that is the mediating influence in the real world is, you know, I mean, the, the famous essay, the Gulf War did not take place. Yes. Um, yes. Th- this brings up, this brings up Demons 2, I think, really quite clearly. Because the events of Demons then get kind of reified and fictionalized to be retold in another broadcast in Demons 2. So we have an additional kind of layer of self-reflexive meta-critique happening. Gone is the theater. Lamberto Bava's Demons 2 gazes forward onto a future of cord cutters and a world without movie theaters. It's an apocalyptic vision of the total devastation of any public common. In a turn that would make J.G. Ballard proud, Demons 2 imagines an expensive apartment complex that supersedes any necessity for communal gathering. Even our parties are just gestures towards a greater capitalistic ascension. It's all reproductive labor to ensure the obedient performance of values laid out by an oppressor's material needs. It's Plato's allegory of the cave, but thrown at the exact moment a cocaine high peters out and starts to turn sour. Your skin starts to crawl, not because you can see something beyond our moment, but because you can see how disjointed your position in that moment has become. The samurai motorcycle anti-demonic rampage in a crowded theater that only ends when a helicopter plunges through the ceiling like a divine messenger, shattering the firmament is gone. It's only stumbling in the dark of an apartment complex you can barely afford, but are trying to make the best of. The echoes of the first movie are now personalized, grown up, and responsible. Tony the Pimp is hard at work as a fitness instructor in the tower's gym, and, ironically, the leader of our cocaine-fueled punk rockers is now tower security. Transgression in its most unprincipled form is shed as the weight of the real-world responsibilities comes crashing down. If there's a helicopter careening into the reel of this film, it's the knowledge that, if we are all not careful, we'll wind up throwing showy office parties in an overpriced condo and love it. Demons ends just as chaotic as it blooms, but Demons 2 opts for what I would argue is a much wilder ending. We're seasoned horror fans. We know a seemingly peaceful ending is about to be met with a sudden fake-out. Of course the girlfriend is about to become a demon, we see this a mile away. Demons 2, however, has a much darker fake-out ending. The ending is a fake-out for the audience. We're all sitting there expecting the baby to be revealed to be a demon. It's obvious and would fit in perfectly with the tone of Demons 2. But no demon baby reveals itself to us. Only the real. We often remark on this show how one of the most frightening prospects is to wake up day after day realizing you had never changed. But what could easily be worse is to wake up unchanged, but in a world that has fundamentally shifted beyond what you had prepared for. The thing is, a demon's level interregnum is guaranteed. Whether climate apocalypse or a future taking bold strides towards a socialist utopia, we're changing, and faster than we might be ready for. That scares the hell out of me, that I might wake up one day unchanged in a world that has outgrown me, and I'm not sure how to be ready. Beyond continuing to encounter the world and drink fresh from the font of the real. Is trying all it takes to become new? Find out with us as we discuss Demons 2. Something very strange is happening here. 
Yeah, I, I think I think that's a very good way to start looking at Demons Two. So, so D- Demons Demons Two has a challenging sequence, uh, a, a deeply troubling thing, and that's watching people with '80s fashion work out in a gym. And I know, I know, you had some takes on this one. Res- uh, resident yes. horror vanguard uh, fashion expert at the fashion uh, guy. Yeah, we, yeah. Let's let's talk about how so much of the the body is framed in Demons Two. Um, mm-hmm. We have a returning character, well, a returning actor um, from the first Demons, but we also have. There's a lot of kind of like. There's a lot of like very. Again, we're back into fluids. There's a lot of like oily, sweating, lithe bodies here, um, and there's a lot of kind of like. It's it's essentially like eighties hair metal body fascism. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> how do we how do we how do we unpick this Gordian knot? Uh, so our ret- let's let's start with our returning character because this, this this might also be like some interesting conversation we can have uh, about about that. So our returning character is Bobby Rhodes, uh, returning to act in Demons Two. Uh, he was in the first movie as Tony the Pimp. Um, along along with his two sex worker pals, uh, Rosemary and I forget the other one's name off the top of my head. Um, and, and and I think we have like a really complicated discourse to have here because the first movie is like fairly cavalier with its racism, re Tony the pimp and Rosemary, right? Especially when we you know Rosemary is the first person infected by by the demon virus and she's infected because she's being. Uh, she's misbehaving in an artistic setting, right? She's grabbing an item from an artistic display and, and jokingly putting it on, right? The demon mask, right? She isn't behaving in in the, the norms of civilized society. And so we have like some very problematic racial discourses. And then uh, uh, Bobby Rhodes returns uh, you know, here for this one. And now he is a fitness instructor. Yes, Um so yeah, uh, Tony in the first film is is like it's honestly it's uh, it's genuinely embarrassing. I mean, even for, even we can go ah oh, we can excuse the problematic thing because of historical context. No, even for the eighties, it's awful. Um, you know the kind of stereotypical pimp character played uh, almost entirely straight. Right, that there isn't really oh, yeah. a joke. It's not really a joke, uh, which m- might have been a way that you could do that. Um, but then he becomes a kind of fitness. He turns up again here as a fitness instructor, um, and again, there's some really interesting things happening in the second film about the representation and role and function of the body. Mm-hmm. Um, there's pregnancy in this uh, second film. There's a lot of yes. reproductive, a lot of reproductive and gestational labor happening. There's a lot of like self improvement of the body. There's a lot of like um mutilation of the demonic body so how do you how do you feel about the fitness instructor slash like leader <laughs> of the barricades that he becomes so so I, I think this is really interesting right because in the first movie uh bobby rhodes uh, is tony the pimp and tony the pimp is the only person who is willing to take charge in this chaotic situation Right. Everyone else is screaming and panicking and running around. And he's like, okay, well, let's get ourselves. Let's try and find the exit. They fail to find an exit. And then he's like, okay, let's get ourselves to a secure, defensible position and barricade ourselves in and wait for rescue. 
right? He's he's got like a plan, and the second he gets killed, the plan immediately collapses, and everyone starts panicking and running around and just waiting to die again. And even you know Rosemary, the the first person who's infected, right? Like, you know, she she tries to seek help, and everyone ignores her. Right. And like like when her other sex worker friend is is infected with the demon virus, she also tries to seek help and is ignored by everyone uh, who mm-hmm. thinks who think it's just part of the movie that they're watching. And like I, I think there are there are some like discursively useful things happening in there in regards to agency, in regards to how people are made to be invisible in public discourses, especially when we start to see these things like race and sex work intersecting with publicly visible illness and ability like like there are some really good discourses that are brewing in demons you know the first demons movie even if it is largely mishandled um by the film that then of course we get this we get this fitness instructor who immediately kind of tries to lead everybody into violence against Mm -hmm. them it's like is encouraging them to make molotov cocktails yes um uh, but they all, they all, even though they outnumber the infected demons at this point, all of them die. Mm-hmm. Um, all of them get killed, and it's like there's something that, yeah, I, I feel like we're we're kind of like tracing along the edges of how easy and how quick it is to move from the guy who is telling you that you have to get strong in order in order to be like an 80s business success <laughs> to being the guy who tells you to find weaponry and start making Molotov cocktails because there's a nameless horde coming that you are morally required to do brutal violence to right it's it's all there <laughs> and that and that's i i think that's kind of discursive downturn with Tony's character i like him so much more in the first movie than I do in the second one, right? And the first movie, his character is very, very complicated, which is surprising to say in the context of like Berto Bava's demons. <laughs> but he's he's got this surprisingly complicated character when you kind of like look at him honestly, when you look at Tony the Pimp honestly for what's going on there, right? And then in the second movie, they do kind of like boil him down a bit, right? Right? They 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 take off some of those complex edges. Right. And like they, they, they kind of make him into he's no longer a survivor trying to make it out of a very difficult situation, making choices that may or may not be correct. And he, now he is like, I think exactly the picture of what you're painting. Right. He is he is ready to send men, women and children to their death in the name of defeating this kind of faceless adversary. Yeah. Um, there, there's there's something like I say, there, there's something so interesting about the discourse of the body in the second one, um, and also, and also, I think there's something else that we should pick up on, which is the degree to which uh, all of the 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 women across both films are consistently there. There is this kind of like note of hysteria that the film deliberately kind of inflicts upon them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking of the 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 moment in the second one where you know they're trapped in the in the lift, and there there is so many points where men literally always turn around to women and go, "Calm down, you're being hysterical." Like like right. it, it happens again and again and again, and this is kind of like affective, embodied emotional excess. Again, so there are so many kind of discourses of the body happening. Oh yeah, and, and I think that's a really good like thing to contrast across both films too, right? Is that like 
there, there, there is this like proto-fascistic misogyny that's kind of running through both films, right? Because women are either objects that need to be saved for their assumed reproductive values, which is what we see in the first and second movies. And the other thing yep, that we that's see... that's literally how the second one ends. <laughs> yes, yes. It's, it's also in how the first one ends, too, because in the first one we see the inverse of that, where the second a woman becomes this demonic force, which is now stripped of its reproductive powers they're disposable there's something that needs to be put down and put away right which immediately draws the demon zombie into the context of being queer coded it makes it vampiric in that way we have all these like carmillas running around turning women into non-reproductive you know non-agential demons or not non-agential but like like removed from the types of agencies that would allow them to be preserved by like these cis hetero patriarchs that are here to save the day in quotes that's yeah, that's a that's a super interesting point, actually. Um, and well, I guess how do you think this kind of ties into the overall media critique that's happening? Uh, again, the media critique is, I think, a lot more explicit in the second one. Oh yeah, I, I think the second one. The the so there's still the there's the on screen and off screen space in Demons Two, and I think in Demons Two the off screen space is much less interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's almost an inversion. It's an it's an inversion of the first film in so many interesting respects. But so our our on screen space is uh, our characters are watching a televisual broadcast uh, about some some journalists slash grave robbers breaking into. Uh, the the kind of theater district where the first demon breakout happened, and I guess it was like bombed or something because now it's just a bunch of like destroyed buildings and ashes and stuff, and it's walled up as well. There's a mm-hmm. there's a like a barbed wire wall that you have to get over. Oh yeah, there's there's there's, there's very much a not asbestos wall that they're crawling over. There is not there is <laughs> not uh, in in East West German divide that they have to navigate over. Um, yeah, there was also it was in set in set in berlin i mean mm, there's probably no subtext to this at all but just overthinking it (laughs) a germany divided with one side being this kind of intractable demonic force that cannot be recognized by the other that doesn't Mm. have any cultural relevancy in the 1980s i don't think that carries any yeah i I, I know i know writers who use subtext and they're all (laughs) cowards (laughs) um uh, let's see. What was they even talking about? Oh, the media, the media. Yeah. So like we have this media ecology where they're breaking to the other side of the wall to kind of see what's going on there. And mm-hmm. I, I think there's a lot to tease out here. And the first thing that, that, that I kind of noticed and that kind of jumped out to me was that like they're not like what they're saying to themselves when they cross over the wall to see what's happening on the other side is they're like, oh, we're going to bring the truth. We're going to let everyone know what happened over here. But the first thing they start doing is like grave robbing. They're they're there to grab trinkets to take back to sell to the West. <laughs> and it's and it's like, oh, okay, like you're not you're not you're you're not actually there to to figure out what happened. You're there to reproduce these narratives you've already been given. Right? Mm-hmm. You're gonna come back with with the tales of horror that you've been told. And so I think it is kind of revealing like aspects of journalism and aspects of the media apparatus at large in how they manufacture the consent of the population. Manufacturing and consent, tick your bingo cards, everyone. Ding, 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 ding. And, and of course, this is, this is how um, 
this is how the, the 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 new demonic infestation happens, right? Because it's by engaging with this uh, evidently deeply ideologically motivated broadcast that the the goo breaks out once again. Yeah, which I find I find I find this to be really interesting too. So, what do we make of this, right? Because the demon incursion has like this biphasic release that happens here, right? Because so. Mm-hmm. The televised broadcast is not live, right? This is a thing that happened in the past, right? And inside of this televised broadcast are, are kind of would-be grave-robbing journalists or parachute journalists or whatever we want to call them. Um, they, one of them accidentally gets cut, spilling some blood onto the fangs of a vampire. I mean demon, I mean zombie. And the, the <laughs> demon is resurrected by this fresh blood. Uh, kills, kills, kills off our would-be parachuting journalists and then breaks out of the screen and into the real world, which would be in the future, since mm-hmm. that's how pre-recorded broadcasts work. <laughs> so what, what do we make out of the kind of like temporal disjunction and, and the kind of like layers of, of this kind of like viral thought being transmitted over media? Well, again, I think this is, this is the thing that's really interesting about this film is, the, and both films rather, is how they construct their own media theory and i think a big part of this is something that i noticed watching it is that the distinction between the television broadcast and the film world that we're watching is almost completely invisible mm-hmm. right they they look the same look at, whereas in the first one actually there is you know when we've cut back to the film within a film, right? The film stock is different. The lighting is different. The grading is different. There is a very clear distinction between them. And to me, I don't know if this is kind of like overthinking things a little bit, but like, isn't this like a comment on the ways in which TV became real life, right? It was a, it was, it wasn't just a supplement to, it, it became actually, it was the media that was it was in your home, all right. It was it was the thing that was an extension of your domestic space. So, really, that temporal disjunction doesn't really matter now because those those moments of media are kind of timeless. They're they're almost immortal. Ooh, I think that is an absolutely fantastic way of looking at this. So. This, uh, this, so the big distinction with Demons 2 from Demons 1 is it's not set in a theater. It's set in The Tower, a high-rise <laughs> apartment complex that is in no way, shape, or form related to the works of J.G. Ballard. Uh, I mean, yeah, this is basically, this is basically high-rise. Um, no, 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 it's The Tower. It's, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what do you what do you think about this? In a way, I don't necessarily feel that this is as successful. So I, I think I think it's missing. So so the thing the thing that makes high rise work really well is that the apartment complexes on the top can literally look down on the balconies of the apartments below them. It has this kind of pyramid structure towards the top, mm-hmm. and the apartment is also the high rise is also meant to be entirely self sufficient. Having its own grocery, it's 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 all of all of its own facilities, whereas the, the the tower patently doesn't, you know, like it's not as self-contained. Um, but I think that in a way, 
it doesn't make it worse for me. It just forces us to bring out different discourses, right? Because that 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 immediately forces us into questions of like, okay, well, why is it that the residents of what what is clearly a like upper class tower, right? Like the, the, these are all people like no one's financially hurting who lives in the tower in Demons Two. Right, these are all clearly successful '80s business people wearing the worst suits you've ever seen, <laughs> and and they can like like so our protagonist, right? You know, his wife is pregnant, and she's like, "Oh, honey, go run to the store and get me some snacks," and he's like, "Okay," and then he's like gone and back in a second, and it's like he must live in a really good neighborhood to have you know access to food be that close to him to to be that easy to achieve, right? And so we have these discourses of like. You know, we could talk about food scarcity and food deserts in the context of demons too, and and the kind of like why we construct certain neighborhoods to be certain ways, and and so I think it's more of like a sideways approach to high rise. What are your what are what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I think the big problem is that the uh, in in the film adaptation in Ballard's novel, it's about the reification of class striations. Yes, right. That's 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 the whole point. Right. the The, the tower is the world. The tower is the tower is everybody. Um, you are always already within the tower, um, and that isn't what's happening here. Um, and yeah, maybe that's part of the reason why this is less successful. But it is also a good example of how certain kinds of media are still occupy a certain class stratification. Right, this mm-hmm. idea of like uh, having a TV at your home—it was not even in the late 80s, was becoming more commonplace, but was probably not universal to the same extent. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think you, you, there is there is a discourse here that, like, taps into those um, uh, class hierarchies and class positions that Ballard's work maybe makes much more clear. But again, we have to kind of approach it orthogonally. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. It, and yeah, it, it is kind of missing the, that critique of striation. These are all just, like, 80s business types. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think your point about, uh, oh, go out and get some snacks for me is a really good way into this and connects probably most clearly to the bit of this, which is bound up with class discourse, which is about reproduction. Yes. Let's talk about, uh, take out your bingo cards audience, uh, Sylvia Federici for a moment here. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about Sophie Lewis. Let's talk about family <laughs> abolition. <laughs> Ding, ding, um, ding, ding, ding. Yeah, uh, uh, Caliban and the Witch, uh, to check your boxes. Counterplanning from the kitchen, check your boxes. Yeah, so so I think, and this is something that, that, that I think is actually in both movies, but it's so much more pronounced in the second one because a, a character in this one is pregnant. I, well, so is one of our demons, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> let's talk about that scene shall we yeah yeah let's let's so what are what are some of your thoughts and feelings about demon babies um i honestly i honestly find this this moment really uh kind of baffling uh because but actually this does kind of pick up on some of the things that you were pointing out about the kind of queer coding so Hannah is is the pregnant woman who's waiting for her husband to come back. She's attacked by this demon boy. And then out of the, his body, of the dead body of this child, 
kind of emerges like another flying demon a little demon puppet a little gremlins it's not gremlins a little, yeah a little gremlins puppet a little um, not gremlins the, pops out uh and it's like uh, i i honestly there's so much happening i don't even know where to begin um you could talk about you could talk about yeah family abolition you can talk about social and gestational labor you can talk about um what does it mean to kill that which is pregnant um what does it mean to to uh to like all of these things all of these kind of discourses are bubbling away on in the in the subtext of that moment um what do you think so i mean as as much as i want to have some like highfalutin big city discourse the little gremlin is just a gremlins that that's <laughs> this when, when i see the little demon pop out every time i watch this movie i'm like gremlins got a gremlin Yep, they they're just doing their thing. It's, just doing it's, their thing. It's the 1980s, and if you have a a off, off, wacky oddball monster movie, you have to have a cute little puppet because if your movie takes off enough, you can get toy rights. And then and then and then uh, we could live in a world where the third demons movie isn't the church. It's actually like I don't know, Demons Three, Christmas Madness, and it's and it's just de- you know Gremlins but with little demon puppets. Yeah, that 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 was almost almost certainly what was expected. But again, even if you do that and you go, you know, well, I'm not one of those fancy big city podcasters. <laughs> I'm not one of those Brooklyn podcasters. I'm just a small down home horror movie podcaster. <laughs> we do homespun country podcasting here on Horror Vanguard. <laughs> but even if we try and do that and go, ah, well, it's just a, it's just a. But again, it's tied up in like toy rights and families and yes mm-hmm. goes right like back the to ways it. in which yeah once again even if you try and just go well it was the 80s you needed like a goofy toy you're still going back into the into the kind of the political economy of reproduction right and and the thing the thing about gremlins and then and then thereby the thing about demons that needs to be ignored entirely for for the for the film to work on, on a kind of presumed cis patriarchal standard is that like gizmo is a boy right like uh, yes the the film makes no qualms about about gizmo's gender gizmo gives birth to all these other little gremlin demons we we see the same formulae happening over here in demons you know we we have we have this kind of like Oh my god! What is the term for paternal birth? I'm forgetting the the term because I'm not a high fancy city podcaster. I'm over here working the podcasting still, and the fumes are getting to me, dear listeners. <laughs> Just working on the same podcasting farm that my grandpappy left for me. <laughs> is, it, is it parthenogenesis? Is that what I'm thinking of? Uh, potentially. Ah, uh, who knows? Doesn't matter. Um, because what I'm thinking of is, is, is this is kind of like we have to like leave that gendered discourse out of this movie, right? Mm. Because like, e- e- of course, it would be monstrous if there was a kind of paternal birth, right? Like if the paternal had to do the maternal labor, right, of child rearing, of child birthing, like, of course, that would result in this kind of monstrous thing. But it's monstrous on kind of like every phase, right? It's monstrous in the eyes of the presumed patriarchal power structures that this movie is being you know produced for and by and it's also monstrous from a, a left discourse because it, it it is this thing that's here to disrupt the normative 
Yes. Yes. And I think it's, I think it's the, the, the political economy of the family structures things all the way down. Cause you, and I mm-hmm. think this, this means that we, now we do have to talk about the ending. Bum, bum, bum. Let's talk about Hannah the ending of Demons and Demons 2. Hannah and George. Um, uh, honestly, George MacGyver's uh, his way to a solution by <laughs> blowing up the demons uh, by causing a gas leak, which um, is it's pretty impressive. Um, uh, Sally returns the the coolest demon in Demons Two, um, and we get the we get the the we get the eventual uh, birth of the couple's child at the end, and it's like. And then we have another ending. So, like, 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 let's get into them. What do we think about these endings? So, what I will say right off the bat is that the gas leak explosion to kill your horror movie franchise monster not as good as the one in Halloween Two. Uh, that, that's that's what I will strongly agree. Uh, Doctor Doctor Loomis martyrdom is is what we'll be talking about in the future, maybe. Um, <laughs> Saint Saint Doctor Loomis. Um, so yeah, the endings of this movie. So in the ending of Demons One, um, all of our characters escape, and there, there's like a six-year-old boy with like a shotgun and a jeep with his dad. It's like these these Americans who are on vacation in Berlin are there to save the day, apparently. Yep. Um, and so so they're all in the jeep and they're driving away, and like the kids are blasting some demons, and it's this kind of like. It it, it 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 reminds me a lot of a lot of the unsettling discourse that comes out in zombie f- fiction and zombie cinema, where like the zombie is just this floating signifier for like a a detested cultural other, right? Mm-hmm. That we can freely dispose of and treat as non-human or subhuman. Also, um, they're like the most Aryan children, <laughs> just out of nowhere at the end of this movie, being led by like their benevolent white-haired grandfather. It is like sus. <laughs> I, I, I look askance at ye end of demons. Um, but what we see here at the end is that like, you know, we, we, we get like the, it's a fake out ending, right? Because, oh, they're, they're riding happy into the sunset on the Jeep. They're going to escape the demons. The, the boyfriend and the girlfriend have, have lived through this nightmare and can now go have 2.5 children. Um, but no, she's a demon and then is immediately shot and blasted out of the car. And, and there, there's our fake <laughs> yeah. out. And, and of course, like, that's a discourse of reproductive labor, right? She can no longer do reproductive labor, labor so she is jettisoned from, from salvation. And then we go to Demons 2, right? And Demons 2 sets us up for another fake-out ending, right? Because it, it is uh, our, our, you know, husband and wife and their baby that, that they're walking out of the, the, the tower with. And of course, the setup is they're going to look at the baby and it's swaddling cloth and it's going to be a demon, right? That's the setup for the fake out, but the baby's just a baby. So it's a, it's a fake out, but it's a fake out for us and our expectations of horror cinema. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a, it's, it's a, it's a meta fake out. Yeah, abs, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so what do we, what do we make of this kind of contrasted ending? Because they're, I mean, like, like obviously the first thing I, I think to look at is like, the 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 proto-fascist approach to family right like yeah the reproductive labor of women we've done all all of our like we've done all of our morally justifiable violence now we can walk off into the sunset with our beautiful perfect child that we have protected from this monstrous other 
Yes, and if there's if there's anything a fascism hates, it's a woman that doesn't have reproductive capabilities. Yeah, exactly. Um, should we talk about the 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 second ending almost? Yes, yes. Let's okay. So, so what are your what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? So this is the bit where they see um, Sally. So they they find what appears to be a TV studio, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is full of cameras pointing at them. And so they are endlessly kind of refracted on all of these screens. And they see images of Sally on these screens kind of running towards them, uh, mirroring how Sally was infected right at the very beginning. Uh, Mm -hmm. So they have to then smash all of the television screens in order to protect the new innocent life of the child. Um, what What do you make of this? Oh my god, why is there so much to say about Lamberto Bava's Demons and Demons 2? Why? Why are we like this? Because it's art. (laughs) (laughs) This is elevated horror. This is what we mean when we talk about elevated horror movies. It's elevator horror in the tower, but I'm... (laughs) Um, So, I I, I mean, like, there's so much to pick apart. Because I mentioned this right at the beginning when I was talking about this as being like a meta critique of the, the the media ecology that we now exist within, a kind of McLuhanite, Marshall McLuhan's, uh, you know, mechanical bride. The medium is the message. Uh, would you Would you agree? So one thing, one thing that's kind of coming to my mind right now as we're having this discussion, because um, we were we were just on Library Punk for a lovely discussion of the movie Storm Center. We were um, indeed. And- kind of one of one of the things that was borne out in that discourse was that the the kind of there has been a long-standing conservative fascistic fear over what is in media and what is allowed to be represented in media and under what terms mm-hmm. right this goes back to nazi book burning we saw this during mccarthyism here in the united states we could talk about video nasties over in the uk as a perhaps more minor example of this but nevertheless a constitutive one and here we're kind of seeing it played out at the end of demons too right we have like this infected demon right like this absolute other this subaltern figure this this human that has now become non-human through through changes that has happened to it or to them or to her and what what are our what is our good Aryan reproducing family unit doing they're they're destroying its ability to be represented in media right they're doing a kind of televisual equivalent of book burning here at the end yeah it's it's both a it's both a curtailment and and a massive kind of like concession about the power of the screen right mm-hmm. this film this film ends by smashing television sets <laughs> like like uh, and i i think i'm right to say that uh lamberto bava would later go on to do quite a lot of television work in italy yes and i'm like that's a super interesting move from somebody who made demons 2 which ends the way that it does that sees that sees the figure running towards you on the screen in the corner of your living room as being something that can literally burst out and change you into something monstrous like goes on to work in tv like what? What an interesting set of choices, right? This, this, and I, again, I, I do genuinely think that the, the films, taken as a whole, function as this kind of meta critique of of the limitations and ideological structures of cinema and the ways mm-hmm. in which um, 
cinema is kind of like being superseded. This idea of the old vision of cinema is the space that you go into in which you participate with the screen that's, you know, the images projected in front of you. Um, and is instead it's becoming like a topology that is like the way in which we navigate the world. In some ways, I think the move to a domestic sphere is kind of disappointing in the second one. But actually, thinking about it, it does make some kind of interesting points about where does the encounter with the screen happen? And it happens everywhere. Ooh, that is such that is such a beautiful point. I really, really, really like that. The, the screen is omnipresent. Even when the screen isn't on, so much of how we approach our lives and our understandings is defined by that very screen, right? Is defined by our meta relationships to it. And, and especially now, like in the context of like the, the, the screen has become this eternalized thing, right? There is always a screen pretty much fused to the palm of everyone's hands. Yeah, absolutely. And even um, even our work here would, on the podcast. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Would we smash it anymore? W- would you smash it, right? If you were to remake Demons Two now, you wouldn't need you wouldn't need a television studio at the end, right? What you need is like a live stream. And like, would you would you smash the would you smash the screen? No, of course not. We would welcome what come, came through. And even I, even I think to add another layer of complexity to that, could you? Could you smash the screen, right? Because the, the television was never quite a necessity, you know, like extremely useful, you know, in, in the everyday lives of so many people as both entertainment and an educational device to, to get news and other updates. But like, you know, laptops, tablets, smartphones, desktop computers, they they have attained this unsmashable quality because now they're not just a vehicle for those medias like now you need these things for your job right you need these things for medical care you need these things to stay in contact with friends and family like the media apparatus has fused itself into all of these other material concerns that used to be serviced from other devices yeah and we don't even have access or knowledge about the infrastructure of how this broadcast would happen anymore right do you, I mean, do we know where the data processing centers are? Do mm-hmm. we know where the servers are uh, on which uh, all of our li- live streams kind of like move through? Like we would exist in a... Com- like demons now, like the demons have won. <laughs> <laughs> well, any any final thoughts? Anything you want to make sure that we include? No, I think I think I'm I'm well and satisfied of our discussion of Lamberto Bava's Demons and Demons 2. And not the church, which doesn't count. <laughs> Happy Halloween, friends. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Halloween, everyone. And we hope you've enjoyed Demons and Demons 2. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky. Spooky.